How are we to live in a world that is so anti-Christian? How are you and I to live out our faith in Jesus Christ in a culture that directly and indirectly rejects the very claims of Christ and His Word? I received an email this week that dealt with that very issue. How are we to respond to present cultural attacks, to discount and criticize and even ostracize those who, who claim the Lordship of Christ and who adhere to the truths that are found in His Word. You know, there's a tension for all of us as believers in Jesus. There's a tension that we face living in this world. In Scripture, we see that we're to live in this world, called to live in this world, but we're not to be people of this world. For many years throughout Christian history, many have taken the monastic approach and totally separated themselves from cultures, totally separated themselves from the world for the purpose of avoiding certain sinful temptations that are found in the world and for the purpose of intentionally dedicating themselves to personal spiritual growth before God. But as we've so clearly seen through this New Testament letter that James wrote, sin is not just a problem out there in the world. It's a problem in us. We we can't get away from it. It's a, a people issue person issue, something that we all face in this life, in this world. And perhaps even more important and instructive for us is that the monastic approach was not the approach of Jesus. When he prayed to his Father in heaven, as recorded in John chapter 17, he, he prayed for his disciples. They would be in the world, not of the world, but sent into the world. Not of, but sent into. So how are we as Christians to to live out that command? To live in light of that instruction from our Lord Jesus Christ? How are we to be people who live in a world that is characterized by hostility and fighting and injustice and oppression and persecution. I think the answer that we see in God's Word is that we are to live with a kingdom of God perspective. Christians are to live with a kingdom of God perspective. In other words, we're to live in light of the truths of the King. The Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. The One who reigns who has always reigned and who will always reign over His people. We're to live in light of His story. A story with eternal ramifications. His story of redeeming a lost and broken and sinful humanity for Himself. We as Christians are to live in light of that story. Knows with a 
kingdom of God perspective, embrace a, a Christian worldview. View the world through a certain Christian lens. And in our biblical passage found in James chapter 4 and 5 this morning, we see some implications of a Christian worldview. As you're turning in your Bibles to the end of James chapter 4, I want to say that this is not an exhaustive list of attitudes and actions that comprise a Christian worldview. That's not James's purpose. As with all New Testament letters, this letter that he wrote is situational. It's addressed to a particular audience, addressing particular issues. and We need to remember that as we seek to understand and apply it to our own lives. So look with me now in your Bibles at James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And by the way, we'll, we'll finish up this letter next Sunday. So we have this Sunday and next Sunday in this particular book of God's Word. And then in two weeks from today on the 10th, we'll have a special focus on our time together. And then following the next Sunday, we'll begin a new series looking at some of the oldest words in Scripture. We'll be looking at the first part of God's Word in Genesis, in the beginning. Well, let's pray together as we look at God's Word. Father, we do pray that You would speak to us through Your Word, by the power of Your Holy Spirit now. Lord, instruct us, teach us Your truth, that we might know how to live for You. And it's in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will... We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If you have a Bible that has headings over particular sections of Scripture, then over these verses it likely says something like boasting about tomorrow. And this is fitting in the flow of this letter because James has been spending a lot of ink and papyrus writing about pride and the dangers of pride. Pride is inconsistent with those who claim Jesus as Lord and who follow Christ as Savior. And here he describes some that through their business endeavors are acting very, very proud. He says, listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. And then he goes on to to condemn such an attitude because it doesn't take into account the plans of God. First implication of a Christian worldview that we see from this passage this morning is that those with a Christian worldview recognize the transitoriness of this life and the sovereignty of God. Those with a Christian worldview recognize the transitoriness of this life. That may or may not be a word, by the way, but it should be. <laughs> you know what it means. 
Those with a Christian worldview recognize the transitoriness of this life and the sovereignty of God. We're not to make plans, arrogant plans on our own about anything without consulting God, without desiring God's plans to lead. The ones that are described here as acting that way are very deliberate. They have well-laid plans about what they're going to do, how they're going to accomplish it. But they fail to to seek the Lord's guidance in any of it. They they fail to seek the Lord's will, to desire Him to lead. Perhaps we do the same thing sometimes with our planners and our calendars. We carefully watch our 401ks. Not that planning is bad. Scripture is not condemning planning here. In fact, it's not even condemning wealth here. It's condemning a boastful attitude. Boastful arrogance about pursuing these things on our own with no regard for the desire and the will and the control of God. Not seeking Him. Acting as if we know exactly what's going to happen in our lives when. And as if we are in full control of it. So we don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Much less a year from now. We plan for months and even years at a time. But we're like a mist. That appears in the morning and is gone by midday. We could be gone in an instant. Illness could come. A tragic accident could come. Death could come. The return of Christ could come. And our plans then wouldn't mean anything for tomorrow, much less a year from now. God is sovereign. He is in control. And those with the Christian worldview recognize the transitory nature of this life and they recognize the sovereignty of God. Look back at verse 15. Instead, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And all that we do, we ought to take God's will into account. When our plans are not His plans, we ought to desire Him to interrupt our plans. To change our plans. To make our plans more like His plans. Like what one commentator said about this passage. He said, for a believer to to leave God out of His plans is an arrogant assumption of self-sufficiency. A tacit declaration of independence from God. It is to overlook reality. Whether men recognize it or not, they will live and do this or that only if it is the Lord's will. And James concludes this subsection of Scripture, verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It's as if he is saying, now I've told you what to do. I've told you how to act. You're a sinner if you don't do it. Reminder that sins of omission... Things that we don't do, that we ought to do, are just as real and just as serious before God as sins of commission. Things that we do that we ought not to do. So because 
Because those with a Christian worldview recognize the transitory nature of this life and the sovereignty of God, let's seek God's will in everything. Seek God's will in everything that we do. If our plans are not His plans, or if our plans are not taking into account His plans, then we need to come before Him, asking Him to lead us, asking Him to guide us, asking Him to change our plans. After all, His plans are much grander, much greater, much more magnificent. They are eternal plans. His plans are much better than our plans. Let's seek His will in everything. This doesn't mean that if it's your will, Lord, necessarily becomes a verbalized formula in every prayer that we pray, but we all ought to to live each day with an appreciation for and a recognition for for God's control over all things and a desire for His will for us. Christians live with a kingdom of God perspective. And we see another mark, another implication of a Christian worldview in the following verses in the next section. So look with me now at James chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Now listen. Same phrase is found in chapter 4, verse 13, signaling something important. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The context reveals a shift between the last section, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. A shift in... And James's primary audience here, who he's describing. Chapter 4 was addressed primarily to Christians and descriptive of, of Christians here. After all, they are the ones who know the good they ought to do. But in chapter 5, we see a description of unbelievers. We know that because there's, there's no call for repentance Simply a description, a declaration of the coming judgment on them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of misery that is coming on you. This is language that anticipates the coming judgment of God. We see here that those with the Christian worldview abstain from self-indulgence and oppression. Those with a Christian worldview abstain from self-indulgence and oppression. This is descriptive of unbelievers who, who live only for themselves with no regard for the eternal and no regard for others. They don't live with a kingdom of God perspective. They, lived with, they live with a kingdom of me perspective. It's all about me. 
We see several marks here, several descriptions of this behavior. And first, we see that God condemns those who hoard wealth. Here in God's word, God condemns those who hoard wealth. Look back at verse 2. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Last days here being used as the New Testament uses last days to describe the period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We are living in last days. According to scripture. It doesn't mean that Christ is going to return this week. It doesn't mean that Christ is going to return this year. We don't know when Christ is going to return. But we ought to live like he could return at any time. We ought to live like he might return tonight. Living for him. with The kingdom of God perspective. Perspective that is eternal. God condemns those who hoard wealth. And the description here is not. Not exactly like those we think of when we think of hoarders, those that we see on TV. Perhaps you know people like this that have so much junk that you can't even navigate through their houses. That's not exactly the picture here because in, in those episodes and in those pictures, it usually is junk, not stuff that the normal person would care much about. But the picture here is the hoarding of wealth. The hoarding of things of value, of holding tightly onto them in case I might need them with no regard for anyone else. Hoarding of food, food that's rotted. Hoarding of of clothes, clothes that are being eaten by moss. Hoarding of, of wealth, wealth that's corroding, money that's corroding. It's like the picture that We see in the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 about the rich fool that had such an abundant harvest of crops that he couldn't store it all in his barn. So he tore his barns down and he built bigger barns so that he could store all the stuff for a day that he might need them. Jesus says, you foolish man, you won't even be here tomorrow. Then who's going to benefit from what you've stored up? Hoarding of wealth. We're not called to hoard our wealth. We're called to share our wealth. God condemns those who hoard wealth. We see then in verse 4 that God condemns those who defraud workers. God condemns those who defraud workers. Verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. God is a God of justice and He had required his people to also act justly and to pay the labor a fair wage and to pay it on time. And here we have those that have not paid their their laborers, not paid their workers, not given them their deserved wages. This has reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In other words, he knows about this. We know that God knows all things. Sees all things. He's aware of all things. It says, reach the ears of the Lord Almighty. Literally, the Lord of hosts. Or the Lord of armies. The one who has all the angels in heaven and all the armies of the earth at his disposal to carry out his judgment whenever he so desires. God condemns those who hoard wealth. God condemns those who defraud 
workers. And thirdly, we see that God condemns those living in self-indulgence. God condemns those living in self-indulgence. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. It's just descriptive of those that are living only for the present. Living only for themselves. Giving their selfish and wicked hearts everything they desire with no regard for anyone else. In graphic language, James says that they are like an animal that is being fattened for the day of slaughter. God's coming judgment is coming on them anytime. They're gorging themselves on luxuries and pleasures and selfish desires in this world, awaiting the day totally unknowingly of the Lord's coming judgment. God condemns those living in self-indulgence. And fourth and finally, we see that God condemns those who oppress the innocent. God condemns those who oppress the innocent. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This accusation describing taking advantage of looking down upon, belittling, mistreating the innocent or the righteous, most likely descriptive of wealthy unbelievers taking advantage here in this context of poor Christians, poor believers. We saw a glimpse of this already in this letter in James chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where we read a description of wealthy unbelievers exploiting Christians, dragging them into courts and The picture here in James chapter 5 verse 6 is of condemning the innocent one. In other words, using and perverting the legal system for their own gain, their own pursuits, for their own wealth with no regard for anyone else. God condemns those who hoard wealth. God condemns those who defraud workers, those who live in self-indulgence and those who oppress the innocent. Those with a Christian worldview abstain from self-indulgence and oppression. Although these are the ways of the world, these are the ways of fallen humanity, believers are to abstain from these things and to remember that God Almighty is a just judge. God Almighty is a just judge. He is in control. He is sovereign and always will be. And He is coming again. So when we witness and see injustice in this world, we ought to speak out against it. And we ought to make sure that we don't participate in it. When we see increasing hostility toward Christians and religious freedom slowly taken away, we ought to remember That God Almighty is a just judge. And as long as we are in this world, injustice and oppression, pride and selfishness, self-indulgence, 
living for the pleasures of the day, will continue to be the modus operandi of the world. But the judge is coming. We long for the day when the King and the Savior, the Lord, the Almighty just judge shows up. And although we may face oppression in this world for being followers of Jesus Christ, for being faithful followers of Jesus Christ, we have not been oppressed by the one who really matters. We've not been oppressed by Almighty God. Rather, we have been redeemed by the Almighty Judge. Because He's judged His own Son in our place so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. We have been redeemed through Christ. We have salvation through the gospel of Christ. We've not been oppressed. We've been given far more than we could ever deserve. So thank God for the first coming of Jesus. and He freed us from sin, the penalty of sin. And thank God for the second coming of Jesus when the King returns and fulfills and consummates the kingdom of God for all of eternity. And He makes things right. And there will be no more sorrow, no more oppression, no more injustice, no more tears, no more persecution. The righteous, the innocent, those declared right with God by the blood of Christ will forever enjoy the presence of God. That leads us to the third and final section of our passage for this morning. Look with me at James chapter 5 beginning in verse 7. Be patient then. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord is coming again. The King will return. And as believers in Jesus, you and I are not called to fight back or to retaliate when we're not treated as As we deserve, we're called to faithfully endure and to trust in the Lord to vindicate the righteous. Because as the hymn writer said, soon and very soon, we're going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We are going to see the King. And though he may face delays and disappointments, the farmer patiently waits for the dependable regularity of the changing seasons. As the farmer waits for the seasonal rains, believers are to wait patiently 
for the return of the Lord. To wait for the return of the Lord. Third and final implication that we see from God's word this morning of a Christian worldview is that those with a Christian worldview patiently wait for the Lord's return. Just as the prophets steadfastly proclaim the message of the Lord in the middle of persecution and rejection, and at times even death, you and I are called to be steadfast in our faith in God through trials and temptations and whatever hardships we may face in this life. Just as Job persevered in his faith in God when he lost everything in an instant, you and I are to persevere in our faith before the Lord. Christians are called to live with a kingdom of God perspective. So let's confidently anticipate the king's return. Confidently anticipate the king's returning. He will return. The Lord is coming again. And so we patiently wait for his return. Christians live with the kingdom of God perspective. A perspective that leads us to recognize the transitory nature of this life and the sovereignty of God. A perspective that leads us to abstain from self-indulgence and oppression. And a perspective that leads us to patiently wait for our Lord's return. As people of God, let's live in this world with a kingdom of God perspective. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are found in your word. Thank you that you called us to be your people. Well, we thank you that you've saved us by your grace so that we might forever experience your presence. Well, we thank you that this world is not our home. Lord, help us to be faithful in this world as we live in this world, as we're sent into this world, as your ambassadors, as your messengers, as your missionaries. May we be faithful to you. Lord, help us, all of us, to adopt a kingdom of God perspective, a perspective that reflects a Christian worldview, Lord, that reflects you as king. Help us to be faithful to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.